Our subject today is Simon McNeil, yes. the self-professed medium. He's almost here. For those of you that don't know, I've recently lost my son, Miles. People like Simon like to prey on grief. Ready whenever you are. I need complete darkness. Or rather, they do. the dead have stories there is a place where these horrors are transcribed i'm not sure where i'm going i felt like i was being followed we're headed to ravenmore is it a nice place no here yeah. the dead they're so much closer than you realize i wasn't planning on stopping i just think i'm really tired you're safe here. I just have a thing with noises. It's neurological. Would have probably been better if I just didn't stop taking the meds. Oh, I'm so sorry, dear. I didn't mean to startle you. And some bad shit happened to you. Urban decay. That's what happened. We like to think everyone who stays here is family. We all die. But sometimes the stories of our passing must be forever carved into our collective memory. All stories end here. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I'm Mike 130, your hosting team tonight. And with me, as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing? Greetings and salutations, anthology lovers. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Mike? Doing pretty well, actually. Got a ton of watching in this weekend, which I won't be speaking too much of on this episode other than what we're going to be talking about, but I'll have lots to say when we record No More Room in Hell, I think, what, this coming Sunday? Yep. Yeah, so, um, yeah, nothing much else to report for me. Um, <laughs> I think I'll be talking a lot of Friday the 13th on Sunday. Yeah, makes sense. I, I definitely marked down to ask you about it, but I have a feeling I wouldn't even need to ask. I mean, it's it, ultimately, I don't think I'm going to have all 12 watched by Sunday, because obviously I got movies to watch for other shows and this show and everything else. So um, I anticipate getting through like maybe seven or eight. I've only gotten through three at this point, And obviously that's, again, because I had to watch this movie and I've got, you know, other movies and guest spots coming up, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, yeah, so it's going to be pretty Friday the 13th heavy, but I think anyone who knows me would expect that. <laughs> All right. And then joining us again, it's Don and Ellie. How are you, Don? Uh, doing all right. Uh, great to be back once again. 
cool, cool. Well, we are approaching the middle of October, so obviously this is the time of the year that we usually tend to get an abundance of 2020 horror movies, and still, for the most part, theaters, it's just not happening. But uh, we got... Other than our usual places like Netflix and Shutter, Hulu's actually kind of having a decent output. So tonight we're going to be talking about a Hulu release. It's called Books of Blood. It is based on a Clive Barker novel, is what I understand. And uh, the synopsis goes as follows. A journey into uncharted and forbidden territory through three tales tangled in space. Well, that synopsis, if you didn't tip you off this is a horror anthology so uh we'll see how this goes anthologies can be mixed bags so we'll see what we have to say about that starting with venom general thoughts on books of blood all right this was one i was kind of anticipating i'm a big clive barker fan as far as his literature you know from the 80s and 90s and whatnot but um haven't been much of a reader over the last you know 15 20 years so um i'm not really caught up on my horror literature as i should be but anyway the point is is that this is one that i was kind of looking forward to you know it's the first thing that kind of has clive barker's name on it in a little while uh which obviously excited me but unfortunately i do have to report that i am slightly disappointed with the film what we have here is an anthology film consisting of three stories. Um, no real wraparound story, though there is a little bit of a swerve at the beginning, making you think that there's a wraparound, and then you know there's a little bit of a reveal later on in the film, but we'll get to that in the spoiler section. Um, of the three stories, I really only liked one of them, and that was the second story, uh, named Miles. All three of our stories are named after the... I guess the main stars of said stories. So our first story is named Jenna. Our second story is named Miles and our third story is named Bennett. And of course those people are the main um, subjects of their individual stories. So um, the first one, I, I, I guess we won't do an actual breakdown of the, uh, the segments quite yet. Uh, even if even a spoiler free one, let's just say, uh, we have one segment about a girl who has ultra-sensitive hearing and is forced to take medication because of it. But obviously there's other, you know, mysteries and uh, plots and things that are exposed as we move along. But that's kind of what we're introduced to is Jenna, this, this girl who has, uh, you know, like I said, hypersensitive hearing. And, you know, it, it kind of leads her down a kind of a dark path. Um very similar, but not nearly as well done as the Masters of Horror episode sounds like. I know, Mike, you remember that because we actually reviewed that on Evil Episodes. Mm -hmm. yep. And if you remember correctly, um, you know, uh, for those who don't know, I am a audio engineer by degree. I don't actually work with audio right now. I'm a software engineer. But, you know, my degree is in audio production. So when we talked about Sounds Like, we talked about how it was actually one of my favorite Masters of Horrors episode, which is unusual because it's not really one of the more popular ones. But because of the subject matter, I liked it. Well, this story, which also deals with the subject matter of hypersensitive hearing, I did not enjoy. Um... They, they leave out a lot of pertinent information that we don't get until later. So it's like when the segment ends, it feels like it's incomplete, which, you know, kind of irks you at the moment. 
Um, and this is a long movie, too. I mean, this is almost an hour and 50 minutes for three segments. The first segment is almost an hour long. It's 55 fucking minutes long. That's almost a movie. That's not a fucking anthology segment. Um, but anyway, the second one, uh, you know, uh, deals with uh, a character named Miles who works uh, or who has the ability to speak to the dead. Um, and he meets a woman who's trying to uh basically dispel um you know she she's basically a naysayer doesn't believe in this kind of stuff so she's trying to basically prove that he's a fraud and then the story goes off from there and then our final segment is about a couple of thugs who are tasked with finding the book of blood um in a particular neighborhood at a particular house and then of course that story you know takes a left turn um you know, as they all do. So I'll leave it at that for descriptions. But overall, I just wasn't real happy with this movie. I really enjoyed the second segment. The third segment, which kind of tied into the second segment a little bit, had a lot of potential, I thought. Like, the setup was really cool. But it just kind of left me flat. Like, it, it ended so abruptly. And then, you know, we kind of get an epitaph uh, to the movie, which... I don't know. It doesn't really add. It just adds more confusion to me as far as like characters' motivation and everything else. So obviously we'll get into that in the spoiler section. But the things that the movie does do well, movie actually has a great opening and closing credit sequence with some cool animation, very visceral, bloody kind of uh, drawing, um, and CG CGI as well. Uh, I like the way that the individual segments are presented, looking very much like they've been carved into someone's skin. Uh, obviously, once we get into the individual stories, you'll know why. Um, I thought the editing was very well done. Some of the cine cinematography isn't bad, especially in the first segment, because the building that they live in is like, it's almost like a sky rise uh, beachfront property, but only one family lives there, so they're obviously incredibly rich. Um, but ultimately, it, the movie just didn't do enough right for me to really say that this is a quality anthology. It's not necessarily a bad movie. Maybe there'll be people who enjoy the first and third segments more than I did. I, I didn't dis... Uh, how can I put it? I did not hate them. I just thought that they were unrealized potential for a lot of those uh, two segments. So let me cut off my general thoughts here and say that this is a competent anthology. Uh, and obviously with it being Halloween and it being available on Hulu, I would say yes, I give it a mild recommend. I think most horror fans should check this out, especially since it is based on the Books of Blood, you know, famously written by Clive Barker. But I will say that I was just mildly disappointed that I didn't get the horror action and the tension that I was really looking for. Like, I, I felt almost no tension throughout this whole thing. Um, this thing, they definitely went for the visceral more than, you know, um, kind of supernatural tension or things like that. It was definitely more about the, uh, the gore and blood, which, you know, you don't even really get a whole lot necessarily. It is a Hulu original, so... I'm going to say it's an okay movie, good, not great, and it gets a mild recommend, but it's, for me, it's nothing to write home about. I, I, I actually prefer Nightmare Cinema from a couple of years ago, and if anybody remembers that episode, I, didn't, I wasn't all that high on that particular movie either, but at least, you know, with that movie, we get a true wraparound, we get five individual stories, some are better than others. This one, we only get three, we get no wraparound. 
And if you don't like any of the stories, obviously you're just going to dislike the movies. So, yeah, mild recommend from me. Good, not great. All right. Uh, How about you, Don? What did you think? For me, this is the bottom of the food chain. This is the worst movie I've seen all year. Um, I cannot... I cannot find almost anything in this film that's even worthwhile or watchable. Um, The scares are pedestrian. Everything just is presented with this bland, utterly monotonous pacing that just drains the life out of everything that happens. The fact that every single story begins with the name of the person who's about to die it tends to take every single amount of suspense out of the story because, you know, you're, they're supposed to die in the end anyway. So there's no, uh, he, Venom was right. There's no suspense. There's no tension. There's very, very, very little about this that stands out as anything remotely competent in any fashion. Um, uh, yeah, I, was struggling to stay atten- to pay attention to this thing. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. I, I really, really, really believe this is the worst movie I've seen all year. I will agree with Don in the sense that it was a little bit of a, a chore to get through. I didn't actually watch this in one night because since that first story, like I said, it's 55 minutes long and it's not all that great. By the time I was done with that story and I realized I still had almost an hour left and you know, that story didn't really set me up for anything, any great expectations for the rest of it. So I actually stopped watching it and uh, ended up finishing it on another day. So I I should have added that to the first time because this was not an easy watch. Like I said, an hour and 50 minutes, and there's not really a whole lot of, like, exciting horror action, if you will, or even compelling characters or compelling storylines. I mean, it's just... um, To me, it's a below-average Into the Dark movie, and that's, that's unfortunate considering it has Clive Barker's name on it. But it's not like... You know, everything with Clive Barker's name on it is stellar. I mean, he's had some adaptations in the past that eh, maybe weren't exactly classics. They can't all be Hellraiser, obviously. So, yeah, I, I forgot to add that point. Thank you, Don, for reminding me. <laughs> uh-huh. No problem. All right. So as far as I thought, um, I definitely thought the second segment was the best. I probably like the first segment a little little bit better than venom overall it's just an okay movie i didn't i don't dislike it as much as dawn it's not like my bottom of the year it's just there's some the, 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 i'm finding that a reoccurring theme that anything that's adapted of clive barker's that that clive barker's not involved in you're gonna get like a very watered down version and after i watched it um you know how like for like shutter or hulu sometimes you'll get like the uh the advertisements on like your facebook feed or social media and for the show well i dipped into like one of them after i watched it just to see like what people were saying and most criticism was coming from people who have read the books and were like they're like it's just disappointing because it felt very watered down and sanitized from what the books are which i I was gonna expect anyway and then when you're looking at imdb it's like um obviously he wasn't the director but this must have been like a total 
obviously the telepike like is Barker's not even listed as writing, so he probably had other than the fact that he wrote the actual books of blood, pretty much no involvement other than you know the original um, content mm. of it. Uh, there was actually another adaptation of this in two thousand. What was it? Nine. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never seen that one. That's an adaptation of the second story, but that that turns it into a full length film. Oh, okay. Um, um, although I should mention that the only thing that they really adapt from that, and I really don't care if this is a spoiler or not, is the writing of the body. The writing of the book, yeah. Yeah, the book being written on the body of a person. That's the only real thing that I, I remember, because I was not impressed with that one either. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, it's just like, I, I think, was it Venom that just said it? It's kind of like, um, feels like an Into the Dark episode, basically. That's about the quality you're going to get here. Um, the wraparound, I mean, not really a wraparound. It's, it's more just like interconnected as, as opposed to a wraparound. Um, it just feels like, you know, it's, it's hard to do Clive Barker without Clive Barker. That's, we've seen it time and time again, even, even when Clive Barker is involved, you hear afterwards from Clive Barker, how much the studios resist Clive Barker. So that tells you all you need to know about how, what it's like to try to adapt Clive Barker onto the screen. Ultimately, you know, I, I think this is just an okay film. I, I think the stories themselves there i don't have a problem with the stories it just you know it feels like there was definitely potentially more that could have happened more that probably does happen in the actual books that they decided that you know they just wanted to go for lighter fare in the movie and i do agree for for an anthology with only three stories like what i think it was listed as like an hour and 47 minutes that's a long time the opening segment is super long to where i almost forgot it was supposed to be an anthology because it was going so long that I was like, oh, maybe maybe I misread it. Maybe it's not an anthology. But, you know, I would still say, you know, if you're looking for 2020 content, it's October. You're probably, you know, people are probably looking for everything they can find. I'm, I still liked it enough to say, yeah, go ahead and check it out. But I wouldn't put it at the top of your list. I mean, in the past few weeks, so much stuff has dropped that there's plenty of other stuff you can go to to first so generally speaking that's all i got yeah oh and i forgot to mention the shitty soundtrack i really hate these kind of just like hard rock heavy metal soundtracks it's like they're going for intensity but it, it ends up doing having the complete opposite effect uh, i was not happy with this soundtrack the score is fine but there there's a couple of licensed songs in here that are you know especially during the opening and closing credits that are just like oh really stop so yeah, bad soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, unless you guys have any more for general thoughts, I think we can get to our yeah. spoiler section. I usually, what's funny though, is that I usually do like this presentation of anthology where it's not a wraparound story with segments consecutively, where it's more like intermingled. The thing is, is that they still did present us with the stories. In, in there, just about, other than the first story, which we'll get into in the spoiler section, but they just about play the complete story back to back to back. 
mm-hmm. and without a wraparound, it, it didn't feel as intermingled as it should have. Trick or Treat nails it because they, you know, the, the, the stories are constantly changing. They're going from this guy's story to this girl's story, you know, and, and that worked. It showed that the town that they're in was a living, breathing place with all of these characters. Whereas this movie takes place in the same city on the same night for the most part, other than the second segment. Um, and that's another thing. Timeline tends to confuse me in this movie a little bit, but we'll get to that. Um, but just the way that they that there's no wraparound story and they just tried to do these little clever little silly things like um, a character that we saw in a previous segment will see lying dead on a table in another segment. So it's like you know they're connected, but they're not really trying all that hard to make us feel like this is a living, breathing town on this one particular night where all this crazy shit is happening. I don't get that vibe, and that's unfortunate, you know? Because then it just feels like three subpar stories just kind of sewn together. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're doing themselves more of a disservice that way. Yeah, I mean, they kind of tried to like lightweight connect them but i felt if they were going to i i i felt like by the end of it it was like there was really no reason to even do that they could have just had three separate stories and it would have been fine because the effort to kind of like loosely tie them together it was just like and it didn't really add anything and that's the thing, too, is like if you're not really closely paying attention, you might miss it, the, the things that are tying these stories together. Um, I had to rewind the movie uh, to see that character dead on the table. When I first saw him, I'm like, wait a minute, is that? But the, the camera doesn't stay on him long enough for you to actually be able to say, oh, yeah, 100%, that's that guy. But then, you know, I, I, I rewound the movie, paused it, and I'm like, that's that motherfucking guy. Okay, and then same thing in the next story uh, where you might, uh, where Je- where Jenna is crossing the street and she almost gets hit by a car that we saw in the previous segment once again. So it's like, it's one of those things that if you're not really paying close attention, you won't even realize that these stories are all interconnected. Obviously, there's some later in the film that are very obvious. You know, you can't miss it. I mean, if you have working eyes and ears, you'll see it. But like I said, there's some really, really subtle ones early on. I'm not I'm not sure if that was a purposeful decision by the filmmakers to kind of try to hide that all these stories were kind of connected, or at least that this town, that all these stories take place in, this, in the same town, and then they just started getting more heavy-handed with it as the movie went along. But the more heavy-handed they got with it, the less I liked it and... I don't know. Like I said, there's not really a whole lot of positives I'm going to be able to bring to this one. Decent performances. It's not like any of the performances took me out of the movie. Um, You know, decent, decent writing. I can't even go as far as to say good writing. Decent. Uh, And that's not Clive Barker's fault. That's whoever wrote this screenplay. I mean, if you're going to adapt a a Barker uh, story, just like Mike said, let him do the screenplay. He's the one who knows the proper tone, the proper feel. The, the proper message that the story is supposed to be sending. Um, instead, you probably get some college kids, you know, right out of, you know, film school, writing a screenplay to a, a fucking horror master's novel, and that's unfortunate. So, you know. Um, but, yeah, that's probably all I have to, uh, to discuss on Generals. Uh, we can get into the spoilers if everyone is ready. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so listeners, that is your spoiler warning. If you have not seen the movie yet, go ahead and pause the podcast and check it out. If it if it's something that interests you from what we've already described, if you've already seen it or have no interest in watching it, please stick with us. And here we go. Our movie opens up with a quick opening scene of a... They're either in a library or a bookstore, basically just a large building with a lot of books. And uh, we see a thug who we later find out is named Bennett. Uh, basically, he's... I, b- I believe... Was he trying to rob the place, I think? No, no, he was collecting on something. That's right, he was collecting on a debt from this older librarian-looking uh, guy. Uh, the guy basically told him, I don't have the money, I'll have it for you as soon as I can. But then he tells Bennett, uh, I can lead you to something that's more valuable than any amount of money that I could ever owe you. You could potentially retire if you find this item and sell it. And um, what it is, is a book. He tells him there is a book in a certain house in a certain neighborhood that I need you to collect. It's called the Book of Blood. And if you get this book... You will, you know, you'll be rich beyond your wildest dreams. As soon as the librarian finishes telling Bennett uh, the story of the book and where it can be found, Bennett says thank you and slits the librarian's throat and, you know, proceeds to walk outside to get into his green sports car, his neon green sports car, uh, with another thug that he has with him. But then the camera pans back into the store and it shows the librarian dead with his throat slit. But he has a giant shit-eating grin on his face. Like he's he's very content with what he just did, sending this bug off to get this book. So uh, we go to our opening credits, which I said are pretty cool to look at. They are... um, uh, CG and also some cell-drawn uh, animation, you know, like I said, very visceral, a lot of blood, dead bodies, ghosts, blah, 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 kind of setting you up for what you're uh, about to experience, but mostly just a lot of blood and a lot of carving into the skin, which, you know, if you're a fan of body horror and, and you know, previous Clive Barker movies, it looks pretty cool, so enjoy that at least. After our opening credits, we are introduced to Jenna, who is... um a girl who, as I mentioned earlier, has hypersensitive hearing. She just was released from some kind of facility, either a hospital or a mental... I think later on we find out it is a mental facility. And she sits down with her parents. It doesn't seem like she has any siblings. She sits down with her parents at the dinner table to start eating, and literally all of the chewing... Um, the mouth sound effects are hyper turned up and all she can hear is basically people chewing, swallowing, smacking their teeth, blah, 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 which I can see how that would drive somebody crazy. And, you know, she does make a comment that, you know, she wants to be excused from the table. Her parents give her kind of give her a little bit of shit, basically saying you need to get over this, you know, chewing thing because we can't eat without chewing and neither can you, blah, blah, blah. She gets upset and leaves the room. Um, Later that evening, she overhears her parents saying that they don't think that she has gotten any better and that they're probably going to ship her back off to the mental facility in the morning. Jenna, obviously, like I said, she overhears this. She's not happy with that decision and decides to leave home. And remember, I mentioned that her parents lived in a like a, a sky-rise beachfront property apartment or building, not even apartment, like they own the whole building. Um, 
and it's a glass house too. So there's a couple of shots in the movie that are actually pretty cool where you can see Jenna in her bedroom downstairs and then you can see her parents like having sex in the bedroom right above her. But since it's a glass house, you can see it all in one shot. It's kind of interesting to see Jenna like put on her noise canceling headphones because she knows her parents are fucking it and she doesn't want to hear every second of it. So uh, that's mildly entertaining. So anyway, like I said, uh, Jenna decides to run away from home, but before she does, she breaks into her father's vault and takes a couple of large bricks of cash. I believe each brick is like $10,000 usually. Um, so she, and she took like three or four of them. So, you know, she, she's got some cash to tide her over for a little bit. She ends up taking a bus to Los Angeles, or at least that's the plan. She gets on the bus, which is headed to L.A. But sometime during the middle of the trip, uh, the bus stops to pick up a, a couple of more passengers. And one of the passengers um, gives Jenna some pause, like, like she's scared of the guy or like she's seen him before. And the guy is a tall, thin character wearing all black so obviously as the viewer we start to think that there's you know potentially something supernatural to this character um as she notices walk into the as she notices him get onto the bus uh she notices that he's looking around in all the rows like he's looking for someone in particular she ends up hiding her head like crawling into the fetal position in her seat on the bus and covering her head with her hoodie so that she can't be seen and she's basically acting like she's asleep. Um, so as the gentleman passes by her on the bus, she takes the opportunity to get off the bus and it doesn't look like she has any idea where she stopped. Uh, they don't give us any clue as to what town or city she might be in. Like I said, she just got off the bus early after having paid for the full you know, ride to Los Angeles, but uh, because she's scared of this guy, she ends up getting off the bus. She has no idea what she's going to do about uh, a hotel or where to stay. So she ends up going to a uh, coffee shop that has like um, free Wi-Fi and computers. And the coffee shop is called the Spider's Web Cafe. Hmm. Foreshadowing anyone? Anyway, um, after she... Uh, logs onto the internet she basically goes to almost like a and b type website and uh, she reserves a room at a house uh where this couple lives where uh they basically rent out all their rooms to different people when she arrives at the house she meets um the couple an asian woman and, and just a caucasian older gentleman uh she meets I forget the name of the kid, but she meets one a guy that's also staying at that location with her. Uh, you know, they end up almost like they're starting to hit it off. They make plans to meet the next morning at the Spider's Web Cafe, but he flakes on the date, and she doesn't know what happened. You know, he he just flakes. She ends up going back home, and she's upset that he kind of that that he didn't show up, and the Asian woman is kind of you know talking to her telling her you know what's what um you know sometimes guys just you know are flaky they do that blah 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 and then they start getting into a conversation where they talk a little bit about her condition about jenna's condition with her hearing it's it's a really brief conversation 
Uh, but then we start, but then the Asian woman starts getting a little cryptic with her speech. She starts talking about how her and her husband welcome all comers into their house. Everyone who stays there is family and that she feels a responsibility to take care of them, almost like a mother. Jenna eventually asks her, oh, do you have any kids? And the woman ends up letting her know that she did at one point have twins, but they were, uh, I believe they died in childbirth, right? I don't think, uh. Because she didn't have uh, any she said, she said one died in childbirth because the other one, because the daughter was threatening to move out. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. So one of them died right away. Um, and obviously, you know, um, the Asian woman gets a little sad. Uh, Jenna apologizes for asking. And basically that night, uh, Jenna starts hearing things. Now, obviously, because of her hypersensitive hearing, she doesn't think about it as much she just thinks it's just random noise in one scene she thinks that she hears scratching on the wall and she puts her head up to the wall thinking that maybe there's something like an animal or something in the wall scratching and as she puts her head on the wall a giant fucking cockroach burrows its way out of the wall right next to her head in front of her so that she sees it it instantly terrifies her, and she takes a step back and bumps into the Asian woman who was standing there the whole time. Jenna turns back around, the bug is gone, and there is no hole in the wall. So we're starting to get hints that maybe Jenna's mental state isn't as stable, you know, as we thought. Um, but obviously, this character was just released from a mental hospital. So, you know, there, there's obviously clues there that there's something wrong, but we're not 100% sure. So basically, um, after, after she stood up by the kid, she, uh, that night she ends up getting a, a text from him, or at least from his phone. Uh, she ends up getting into a little bit of a conversation over text saying what happened. He apologizes for flaking. She says it's no big deal. It's okay. Uh, but then the camera pans outside of the, her room, and it's the Asian woman holding this kid's cell phone and texting her. So obviously, you know, all the nefarious stuff is really starting to pile on here. Um, as I said, the Spider's Web Cafe is uh, definitely a kind of a foreshadow of what's going on here. Um, so anyway, that evening, she ends up going back to sleep, and she continues to hear scratching in the walls on the walls so she's you know she gets up she starts like kind of feeling around the walls to figure out what's going on and she actually finds like a secret panel like she uncovers a small very small maybe like six inches by four inches a small panel she opens up the panel and there's an iv bag there like on a stand but that's all she can see through the opening um that that uh, little door exposed. So she continues looking throughout, uh, checking the rest of the wall, trying to figure out, like, you know, what's uh, what else she might be able to find. And she ends up finding another panel that detaches, that swings open like a door. Uh, this one is a little bit bigger, and she ends up opening that to find a person lying in the walls on an IV with no, well, basically with her eyes sewn shut, and their ears torn off and also sewn shut. So basically, we've got, you know, a house with mutes in the walls. And then at that moment, we get the reveal 
the camera pans back and it shows us different parts of the house and all through the house, all through the crawl spaces, inside the walls, there's just a bunch of people all with their eyes removed and sewn shut and all with their ears removed and sewn shut. So, um, basically once she figures out what happened, um, she ends up getting, she ends up having a dream where the boy that stood her up actually shows up in her bedroom that night naked. And, um, she, you know, he, he kind of starts kissing on her, but then out of nowhere stops and gasps and leaves the room. At that moment, Jenna then throws up just a stomach full of the roaches that are coming out of the wall that we see. We'll see like one or two every now and again. But yeah, it's very uh, drag me to hell, you know, <laughs> with the with the old woman puking crickets on on the female star there. So yeah, uh, kind of a lot of the same thing there. Um, after uh, she ends up waking up from her dream, she actually ends up like passing out and waking up, and she's kind of and she's um, uh, what do you call it? She's been giving a she's been given a numbing agent. Um, so she doesn't, uh, you know, know what's going on. She can't move her arms and legs. She's all numb. And then there's the Asian woman sitting next to her bed, basically letting her know. Again, she starts getting more and more cryptic about wanting to help people, wanting to take care of people, wanting to make sure that they're all happy, that they're not seeing bad things, that they're not hearing bad things, blah, blah, blah. Um, and like I said, she is given an injection, and man, first she's given an injection in the arm to knock her out the first time, but then later on, upstairs in the bedroom, after the Asian woman goes through her spiel, um, the gentleman actually puts a syringe in her eye. He injects uh, some kind of numbing agent or, or you know, something along those lines uh, directly into her fucking eye, which I've never seen before. But, hey, I can understand how that would work quicker. The closer it is to the brain, the closer the injection site is to the brain, the quicker the neurotoxin is going to work. So I totally understand that. Um and Jenna wakes up and she's at the dining room table, at the dinner table, and the couple are there with her and they basically start explaining everything. Um, you know, we remove their eyes, we remove their nose so that they could lead a completely happy life. We provide everything they need. You know, they get all their nutrition through the IV bag. They all have like hospital like gowns on and they're basically just asleep. They're just sleeping pretty much all the time. And even when they're awake, they probably don't know when they're awake unless, like, someone's, like, caring for them. Because they do have a scene where, like, the Asian woman will be seen, like, cleaning them. Like, she'll have, like, a damp cloth and she'll be cleaning off their face and their arms and whatnot. Uh, we'll also... And then during this conversation, we also find out about Gavin. That's the that's the kid that, sh that flaked on her date. Of course, this is a horror movie, so as it turns out, he did not flake on her date. He was killed, yes, and they actually show the older gentleman um, basically creating the new spot for him because they're running out of spots inside the house. So he actually built a spot for Nathan in the crawl space of the patio 
So he's actually got, he, they have to start keeping bodies outside the house because they have so many now. But they do talk about how they created a special spot for Jenna because after Jenna explains her past and everything that's happened with her and, you know, her, the, 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 her hearing thing and everything else. By the way, did anybody notice that they kind of dropped her hearing thing like halfway through this segment? Like it's, yes. a major, it's a major plot point for the first half. But then for the second half, it's like, that eh, doesn't matter. Like, That's why I was, like, wondering. I was like, did I miss, like, where, what yeah. happened to it? Because it seemed like when something's introduced that early in the story and it's made such a big prominent deal about, you feel like it's going to constantly come up throughout the story, but it just kind of, like, went away. Yeah. Like, I honestly thought her hearing would, like, maybe save her life somehow. But it really doesn't. I mean, because the things that she hears, any normal person would hear, as far as, like, towards the end of the segment, like, during the chase, if you will, the quote-unquote chase, um, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of tell, ah, I don't even know what the hell the point I'm trying to make is. I don't know that this movie has a point. Anyway, let me move on before I sound any sillier. Um, so at this point, uh, the gentleman who was chasing, or who thought, jenna was being chased by the tall pale guy wearing all black he actually rings the doorbell of this particular house i don't know how the hell he knew that jenna was staying here but there he is at the front door knocking at the door he has a picture of jenna and his son in his hand and he hands it to the asian woman and says have you seen this girl someone told someone in town told me that she was staying here of course the asian woman says oh she left already she's gone blah 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 but, but she still ends up inviting the guy in, and, you know, they end up having a little bit of a conversation. She ends up bringing him a cup of tea. But then, uh, basically, the Asian woman uh, kind of gives a, ver not a, a non-verbal gesture to the old guy, basically saying, okay, take this guy out. I'm sick of entertaining him. And uh, Dad, who looks a lot like Gunnar Hansen, by the way, <laughs> um, kind of walks into the living room with a mallet and just bashes the guy uh, in the head. Uh, before uh, Gunnar Hansen kills this guy, uh, we do find out who he is. And what it is, is this is the father of Jenna's boyfriend who recently passed away. Now, we're not told how he passed away or what happened, just that he passed away. And basically, as soon as the kid passed away, Jenna disappeared and that he was looking for her basically because he believes that Jenna might be responsible for her son's death. And then basically in the middle of that explanation, like I said, Gunnar Hansen shows up with the mallet and bashes his brains in, killing him instantly. Um, at that point, the Asian woman decides, well, we need to get rid of him. You know, obviously he's dead, so we're not going to put him in the, in the walls or anything. Um, so they basically, uh, start to make plans to, because he drove himself there. So there's a car there. So what they're doing is they're going to put his dead body in his car and, uh, push it off of a cliff. Problem is in the time while they're moving, uh, this guy's body and getting and preparing his car, 
Jenna kind of comes out of the anesthetic or, you know, neurotoxin, whatever it is that they gave her. Uh, you start to see her slowly at first. She doesn't have any control of her legs, just her arms. So she's basically just crawling around the kitchen. Uh, fortunately, there is an open window above the sink in the kitchen, and she has enough strength in her arms to kind of climb her way out of there. So she does successfully climb out of the window, out of the house. She falls into the front yard. But no one hears her fall out of the window because, uh, like I said, the couple is busy dealing with this guy's body, putting it in the car and everything else. So what ends up happening is Jenna um, decides that, you know, she doesn't have the strength to be able to run her way out of there and find civilization and help and whatnot. So she, in her infinite wisdom, jumps into the back seat of the mystery guy's car. Well, Jenna's boyfriend's father's car. Um, she ends up jumping into the back seat. I don't know what the fuck her plan was, but she ends up going. And just before she jumps into the back seat is when we then see a dead body in the shed that's been chainsawed. And like I said, that is a character that we have already met earlier in the film. Um, I won't say, well, no, I guess I can say because the movie exposed it. So, uh, basically it's Bennett. It's our thug Bennett. Um, his body has been, his head has been taken off, his arms and legs have been uh, chainsawed off, blah, blah, blah. He's in really bad shape. It's probably the coolest effect in the movie, as far as visceral gore, anyway. Um, and anyway, so like I said, uh, Jenna jumps into the car, realizes the keys aren't in it, but then at that moment, she hears the couple coming out of the house, so she climbs into the back seat, she... You know, she makes herself as small as possible in the fetal position, and she is on the floor behind the driver's uh, seat of the car. We then see the couple load the uh, the man's body into the car, and we have the uh, the discount Gunner Hansen jump into the driver's seat with wife following them in another car, and then they go off to uh, a cliffside. At the cliffside, we see Dad grab a bunch of boulders. I say Dad, but uh, the older gentleman, Discount Gunnar Hansen, uh, basically grabs a bunch of boulders and starts throwing them into the car. I don't know why you have to weigh down a fucking car, but whatever. I'll allow it. I'll accept it. Uh, so he's throwing boulders into the car, and then finally he grabs one last boulder and throw, puts it right on top of the gas pedal in the car. The car is in neutral at the moment. So he basically puts that rock, boulder, whatever you want to call it, on the pedal, uh, which, of course, revs it up instantly. And then Dad uses, like, a long stick or a pole to slap the car into drive. Obviously, as we all know, you slap the car into drive, yeah. off it goes in a straight line. Uh, we see the car going towards the cliff very fast. Jenna then pops out of the back seat, looks through the windshield, realizes <laughs> what's about to happen, but unfortunately, she doesn't have any time to do anything, so all she can do is pr uh, brace herself for the impact. She realizes the car's going off a cliff, and she kind of you see her kind of grab some arm, some hand posts inside to the car. Brace, yeah. Yeah, just to try to brace for impact. Uh, the car goes off the cliff. We see the car land. The car does not explode, even though it's a pretty damn far fall, but whatever. And then the last thing we see is just the car upside down at the bottom of the cliff. And we go to our second segment. <laughs> Literally. I, I assume she was dead. I mean, having no... That's what I thought. 
what? How can he had no knowledge that? of the book. I didn't know that that wasn't the end of the story. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I have read Books of Blood, but it's been so long I remember nothing about them other than the second segment. But uh, when it happened, I was like, "Oh shit!" I was exactly. Like, so I was like, "That's not the usual ending you would get to the story like this." But oh, so be it, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Well, At you kind of. I'm oh, saying you kind of figure you kind of figure it should be because that's the whole point of why their their names are written in the mm-hmm. Book of Blood itself is that that's the entire gimmick. It's Telling tales of people with violent ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so yeah, but like I said, uh, the segment just ends with a shot of the car upside down at the bottom of the cliff and the old couple walking away, and that is the end, or at least presumably the end of uh, the Jenna segment. So then we go to another title card. We are now on chapter two which this time is called Miles. And what this one is, this is the story I was talking about uh, with the guy. Um, He's a fairly young man in his 20s, uh, probably late 20s, um, who basically has the ability to speak to the dead, or at least he can hear the dead, uh, is what he's claiming. And the segment starts out with um, just some shots of him going through one of his convocations, I believe they call it, in the movie. And uh, and then basically at that point we're trans uh, we're transported to meet our main character who is a professor and research uh, scientist of some kind. Like I said, she spends most of her time um, dispelling these kind of things, you know, um, proving them as frauds and hoaxes and things like that. Um, but uh, we basically see her watching a videotape, and the videotape is the footage of Miles convocation that i was talking about so she finishes watching the video she speaks to her secretary and says who sent this here secretary is unaware she said that it was already here when she got in in the morning and then she basically tells uh the woman or she tells her secretary get rid of it i don't want it the very next scene then this segment unfortunately is told out of order and if you're not aware that it's being told out of order it could get a little confusing so After that scene where, you know, she tells her secretary to get rid of the tape, we then fast forward, I don't know, weeks, months, and suddenly uh, the professor is in a room with the guy on the videotape, who, by the way, is Miles, right? Or was Miles her son? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Miles is the son, uh, which I haven't gotten to yet. But anyway, um, so now we are at a kind of almost like a, it seems like it's a book club meeting because the professor also is an author and she wrote a book about Miles. But what it turns out is that it's a meeting of investors. Um, this woman who spent her whole life, um, you know, proving that people who can speak to the dead are frauds, finally found one that is real. And she's now trying to get funding so that she can do scientific research on this guy and the phenomenon of being able to communicate with the dead. Um, And then that scene ends, and then again we go back in time, because then we see the professor in a hospital room. She's outside, she's in the hallway outside of a hospital room arguing with her husband. Um, and she basically accuses him of drinking, and he says, well, you know, I, I deal with my son's issues my own way. 
Uh, she tells him to leave, and she walks into the ho- into the hospital room, and there in the hospital room is lying a young boy, maybe six or seven years old, incredibly pale, no skin, or excuse me, no hair on his body, so we're probably talking about cancer here. Um, like I said, no eyebrows, no nothing. The kid has no hair on him whatsoever. Um, and mom is basically having what will turn out to be her final conversation with her son. Uh, basically, Miles asks her, what happens to us when we die? Um, she doesn't give the standard Christian bullshit, oh, we, you know, we all go to heaven. She actually tries to give Miles a legitimate answer and says, well, I think we all just go to sleep. It's just like going to sleep. We just never wake up. So it's just like rest. And Miles actually replies to that statement, good, because I'm really, really tired. And you you feel bad for the kid. I mean, he looks, you know, this kid actually did a really good job of looking like a cancer patient. Hopefully they didn't actually cast a real one because it was was pretty damn convincing. But anyway, um, after that, uh, once again, uh, oh, no, we're still in this particular timeline where uh, basically – she, we see her going into her office, and there is the, the guy who can speak to the dead, who she saw on the videotape. Completely uninvited, uh, you know, doesn't know who he is until he explains it to her. Um, she's trying to get him out, basically threatening to call campus security to get him out of the office. But finally, he convinces her that, you know, just give me five minutes of your time so I can explain Um, He starts talking about how he can speak to the dead. She obviously is unimpressed because she's never run into a real one. And then that conversation ends with, uh, Miles sent me. He said there's something I have to do. That instantly gets her to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt in the sense that she's still going to watch one of his convocations, but she's there specifically with the purpose of proving that he's a fraud. So... Uh, we fast forward to the day of the convocation, um, and basically what it is is our our gentleman is um, butt naked in an empty white room, uh, just a room with nothing in it, just white walls and one glass um, two or one way glass um, wall so that the observers you know outside can watch. It's basically the professor and a bunch of her students are now watching this guy perform his ritual. And basically what ends up happening is um, he tells everybody, no matter what you hear, do not come in here. It could ruin everything. Um, I am in control. Don't worry about me, blah, blah, blah. And then he starts to say, and I need it to be dark in here too. Um, The professor instantly is like, well, why do you need the lights off? But then at that moment, the lights go off on their own. And you hear uh, the guy's voice say, uh, the dead are almost here. Uh, Once the lights go off, it's pitch black in the room. None of the observers can see what's going on. All they can hear is just loud, guttural screams, almost demonic sounding. Um, Like a series of them, just, you know, back to back. And then finally, the, the sound stops. And the lights come back on, and suddenly um, 
the guy is passed out on the floor or having a convulsion of some kind and the entire inside of the room that was just perfectly white now is covered with writing all over the wall that looks like it was written in blood even though um you know our 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 guy who can speak to the dead uh doesn't actually have any wounds on him and um but obviously like i said he's convulsing at the end of the ritual and um, she basically goes to, she tells one of her students to call an ambulance. Um, and at the moment, just as she's about to walk out of the room, she notices one message written on the lower part of the wall. And it says, I'm not sleeping, mommy. Um, so obviously she instantly starts to believe everything that this guy has been telling her. Uh, we then go to the ambulance where he's now being taken to the hospital. They have a quick exchange there where the professor tells the guy, I want to know, I want to know what you can do. I want to know what you see. I want to know what you hear. And, you know, the guy basically keeps telling her, you're not ready. You're not ready yet. And that's pretty much where that scene ends. Uh, very next scene takes place in the cemetery where uh, the professor is visiting her son's grave. And just as she arrives there, so does our mysterious character who can speak to the dead. Um, they have a little bit of a conversation. Um, the main gist of that conversation is that the guy tries to tell her Miles isn't here. Uh, you know, we always go to our grave sites of our loved ones, but they're never to, to speak to them, but they're never actually here. And he's like, yeah, Miles isn't here. He's somewhere else. Uh, he then jumps into the car with her. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming he's basically giving her directions or trying to kind of tell her where he feels Miles is. And they end up back at the professor's house. And uh, they walk in. Instantly, the guy starts to sense something. Like he he he's still outside, and he starts to play with the swing set. And he realizes, yeah, you can see like a little smile cracks on his face, almost like he senses that okay, yes, Miles is here. Um, he starts walking around the house, uh, going up the stairs. Um, you know, basically, he's sensing something. Eventually, he walks right into Miles' room, uh, uninvited, without being told that it was Miles' room. Uh, he just basically walks in and says, uh, yeah, I, I think Miles is here. I don't think he ever left, blah, blah, blah. So um, uh, the professor and our mystery man, once again, are just having a conversation. Um, he, you know, he lets, he reminds, she tries to offer him a drink, but he reminds her, oh, no, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I can't take it. Um and blah, blah, blah. So uh, eventually uh, they start to actually get intimate. And yes, they end up kissing, which I think was a horrible mistake instantly by the professor. But what the hell do I know? Uh, they end up in bed together and suddenly it's the next morning and they are in bed together. Uh, or, no, it's not the next morning. It's that evening. Um, it's still the, the sun still hasn't risen. It's still dark out. And we see the ghost of Miles standing behind Mom, like on the side of her bed. And he actually puts his hand on her shoulder, which wakes her up instantly. And she starts looking around, and you can see that she realizes that, oh, shit, Miles really is here. Um, blah, blah, blah. I, I guess I have to start to actually believe this guy. Uh, they end up having another 
kind of investor meeting at the house where once again she's trying to convince them you know how real everything is how convinced she is that everything he does is legitimate blah 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 but then uh once everyone leaves from that particular meeting she ends up going upstairs to her bedroom to find our uh our speaker to the dead in bed with one of her students yes uh, a very young attractive girl um, instantly it starts the weirdest uh, back and forth because no one gets loud. She she doesn't like call him an asshole or anything like that. She basically just like, asks him to explain himself. He's obviously drunk because he is taking swigs off a bottle of vodka that's on the side of the bed. And at, at this moment, he basically tells her the truth and admits that uh, you're an idiot. Uh, I was able to dupe you. Um, I, I've, I've never spoken to the dead before. This is all a scam and you're a fucking idiot. And I, and I know that you can't go public with this because if I go down, you're going down too. Basically threatening her and saying that she's part of the scam as well. Well, and I like the fact that he was kind of acknowledging that the scam got too big because he's yeah. like, he's like, I'm used to like taking suckers money, but these are big timers and it's only, it's only going to last so long if I'm trying to take their money because they're going to, you know, look into things themselves and I'm going to get caught. So he's like, we need to cut it off or he's yeah. kind of cutting it off. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of taking what he has and run. Exactly. And he's kind of making the assumption that she's going to agree with him because, uh, you know, because she doesn't want to get in any trouble, too. And then he ends up explaining what happened at the convocation that they were at. Basically, he paid one of the maintenance guys in that building to give him access to that room the night before. And basically, he set up a speaker um, that would project uh, the demonic sounds that they were hearing. And then what he did was all the messages that were on the wall, he actually painted on there the night before, but he did it with invisible ink, uh, basically ink that needs some kind of agent to react to it to make it visible again. Um, and he made it, I, I believe he made it so that it re reacts to uh, ammonia. Um, he has a little, basically when he's showing, when he's, when they're showing the montage of him, how he was able to pull off, uh, you know, the ceremony, uh, they show that he had hidden a small container of ammonia in the room so that when the lights went out, he was able to peel back the floorboard, pull that little ammonia dispenser out, and then suddenly all of the text on the walls was exposed. And then she says, well, wait a minute. Uh, you said things to me that only Miles could know. Nobody could possibly know that. And he said, oh, yeah, um, I knew your husband. We were in AA together. So they're both recovering alcoholics, um, and basically Dad volunteered all this information about my about Miles to uh, the mystery guy. Um, Mom uh, or the professor basically gets pissed off at him after he explains everything. She also asks about the convulsions at the end, and this is actually kind of genius too. Um, our mystery man basically injects himself with penicillin an hour before the convocation. And basically he's allergic to penicillin. So his body goes into a major like convulsion, uh, you know, when the, when the stuff hits his system. So that's why he's able to fake being hurt or whatever and being taken to the hospital at the end of all his ceremonies. So. At this point, mom is pissed off. Uh, she kicks him out. She tells him to get the get the hell out of the house. 
she goes back in the Miles room and she's crying. But while she's in there, she starts to hear a little voice that sounds a lot like Miles. Um, not really saying anything in particular, just kind of she hears it. Then suddenly she hears scratching from behind her. She turns around and there's a chalkboard in the room uh, that apparently, you know, that belonged to Miles. Mm -hmm. And basically, as she's looking at it, being scratched into the chalkboard is bring him to us. So, <laughs> so this this is a nice little twist where yep. you know, mom didn't believe, but now the ghosts and specifically her son Miles are basically exposing themselves to her to let her know yes we are real but that guy is a piece of shit and we need to take care of him yeah and they're probably <laughs> equally or overly pissed at him for the ruse um, exactly for, yeah. yeah so it's revenge time exactly um but before that mom after she sees the message scratched onto the chalkboard she turns around and she sees the impression of a small person under the blankets in the bed um, she walks up to it and she pulls the blanket off and we don't see it as the viewer. All we see is mom's expression change. She, she goes from crying and she, out of nowhere now she has this big smile on her face and then the scene ends. At first I was mad, but then the very next scene makes up for it. Uh, the very next scene, it's the next morning, uh, the professor is outside at the swing set uh, that Miles used to play at, and uh, our mystery man, uh, the speaker to the dead, comes out, um, says he doesn't quite remember everything that he told her last night because he was so blackout drunk, and he asks her, what did I say? She says to him, you told me the truth. You told me the truth about everything. And he said, yeah, I was afraid of that shit. Okay, I'll go back in, I'll get my stuff, and I'll get out of your life. But surprisingly, she tells him, no, no, no. We have investors coming later today. Uh, we, we still have a meeting. We're in this way too deep, and there's way too much money to be made. So what, let's stay here. He's obviously very surprised. He's shocked. Like, why, why the hell is she going along with it all of a sudden? Uh, so she tells him, go inside, get cleaned up. You know, we have a big night ahead of us. As he walks away, the camera then quickly pans out showing the ghost of Miles on the swing set next to Mom. Fucking, the best shot of the movie, by far. Because literally, the camera's on Mom, and she looks over to her left, and she smiles, and then the camera, it's not even a pan out, the camera just switches angles, and then we see her and Miles on the swing set. Really cool shot. The only even mildly effective jump in the whole movie. And it's not really a jump scare, so much as a jump reveal. <laughs> it's just revealing that mom that you know mom isn't actually crazy. She really does see Miles. So I thought that was a nice payoff after not showing us what was in the bed in the previous scene. So it is now that evening. Uh, the professor is there with uh, a new set of investors and her uh, you know her dead talker. And then she basically surprises everyone and says, well, how about if I give everyone an example of what, you know, he can do and how he speaks to the dead? Uh, you can see the expression on his face change. Like, what the fuck is going on? What is she talking about? I can't do this here. She takes him upstairs to Miles' room with all the investors standing outside of Miles' room looking in. Uh, she basically starts to undress uh, our, our mystery guy and... 
as she's undressing him, he whispers into her ear, what the fuck are you doing? And she basically just says, just go along with it. Trust me, I've got everything taken care of. Uh, so basically, after she strips him completely, she leaves him alone in Miles' room. Um, and then she lets the investors outside the room know the same thing that he had said earlier. No matter what you hear coming out of this room, we are not going to open this door. We're going to wait until the ceremony is completely over. And then basically what we get is a CG-filled extravaganza where... Um, Oh, I think his name was Simon, wasn't it? Uh, Simon, who is our uh, talker to the dead, is uh, in the room wondering what the hell's going on because he knows that everything he does is bullshit. It's fake. Um, and he starts to walk towards the door like maybe he's going to leave and just say, fuck it, this is all fake, blah, blah, blah. But as he goes, walks towards the door, the rocking chair in the room starts to rock on its own. He looks at the rocking chair. There's nothing there. Suddenly, he hears a voice of a child on his left. He turns his head, looks to the left side of the room, doesn't see anything. Turns his head back to the right. There's Miles sitting in the rocking chair. And instantly... The lights go out in the, in the entire house, like the lights just completely go out, and suddenly Simon is surrounded by hundreds of fucking dead spirits. Most of them don't have hair. So I, I don't know if that was, uh, again, I don't know if that was a purposeful choice that most of these spirits died of cancer, but that's what a lot of them look like. There were a few there that did have full heads of hair and everything, so obviously they didn't all die of the same thing. But like I said, just hundreds of them surrounding him. Suddenly, Simon starts to float in the middle of the room, and while all this is happening, there's flashing lights, there's demonic voices playing all through the scene. Suddenly, all of Simon's hair is pulled off his body by an invisible force. All his head hair, they, there's actually a cool shot of his eyelashes being ripped out of his uh, eyes. Um, it, it's not ultra bloody. It looks like they're literally just like um, plucking them out uh, like some people might do. And as soon as Miles is completely hairless, suddenly the text starts to appear. And it basically looks like someone is carving words into um, um, Simon's body. Uh, this goes on for like a minute or two. It's a it's a grueling scene. It looks painful as all get out. Um, by the time the whole thing is over, the voices stop. Uh, the lights come back on and the professor walks into the bedroom and there's Simon lying on the floor of Miles' room, just completely covered with text. And I mean literally every inch of him, his eyelashes his toes, his fucking fingernails even. You can see words carved into his fucking nails. So this dude has gone through more pain than, you know, most people would deserve. Though, I, I think for the most part, my, uh, Simon kind of got what he deserved here. Um, basically, the professor walks up to Miles. Miles bleeding profusely on the floor, covered in text, spitting up blood. Blood's coming out of his mouth, his ears, his eyes, his nose, just blood coming out of everywhere. And we hear the professor say, it's okay, it's okay. She's like rubbing his head, telling him to shh, it's okay, everything's cool. 
And then the, the scene fades to red, and that is the end of that segment. That is, of course, Miles. At this point, we've got about 20 to 25 minutes left in the film, and we go into our third story named Bennett. And as I already kind of told you earlier, Bennett is the main thug that's asked to go and get the Book of Blood. We get a really stupid scene that I can't fucking stand this scene, but we basically get a scene in a coffee shop. Well, the, spider web, the Spider's Web Coffee uh, Cafe. Uh, basically, this time, the two thugs are at the counter. They just ordered a couple of coffees, and they both realize they don't have their wallets. And they both ask, well, can we have these coffees, and we'll come back and pay you later. Uh, the clerk behind the counter, the barista, if you will, basically says, uh, guys, no. Uh, either give me 750 or just go ahead and leave. So basically, Bennett looks at the kid and says, uh, do you know what uh, Ravenmore is? And the kid says, uh, yeah, it's not a very nice place. And, and Bennett tells him, well, uh, that's where my friend and I are going right now. Um, so unless you hand us those two cups of coffee and allow us to pay you back later, you will be joining us on this trip in the trunk of my car. Which instantly, you know, the, the cynical asshole that I am, Instantly, I'm like, fuck you. I'd have poured the coffee right on the floor. But this kid is obviously a timid little white boy. He's scared. So he hands them the coffee and says, these are on the house. The thugs leave the coffee shop. And then we see them almost hit Jenna again, just like during the Jenna segment when she ran into them. Well, it's, it's implied that that's actually how it happened. It's not replaying it again. It's just that's setting the time. Oh, right. That's yeah. what I meant. I, I meant we're seeing it in real time now. <laughs> yeah, that's as, as, how it happens. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So uh, basically after Jenna fucks them off, uh, we see them start driving up kind of a country road that's going uphill. The camera pans out to show like a very wide shot. And we see that the area that they're driving into is completely covered with dark clouds and there's no visibility. And actually, if I remember correctly, towards the end of the scene, we actually see the lights of the car just kind of disappear. Um, once, the, once the thugs are in the neighborhood, uh, basically, it's a literal ghost town. It looks like the place was abandoned. Um, it doesn't look like it went through any kind of apocalypse. It literally looks like people just picked up and left. Uh, there's still cars in the neighborhood. There are a couple of lampposts and things that are uh, fallen over. The, you know, um, So obviously it looks like something major happened in this neighborhood, but we don't know what. Our thugs, like I said, are driving slowly through the neighborhood because they're looking for the exact address that they were given. Just before they get to the address, though, uh, the car stops, uh, just turns off completely, almost, you know, um, almost like an EMP went off. Uh, the car completely shuts off. Uh, Bennett, the main thug, tells him tells his partner to pop the trunk. He checks the trunk, fiddles around with some of the things in there. While he's fiddling around with the engine, uh, the thug that's driving notices a woman walk by. And it almost seems like he recognizes uh, the woman that walked by. It's very obviously a spirit because it's all white, obviously, wearing white, you know, uh, pale, blah, blah, blah. But like I said, because he thinks he recognizes it, he ends up getting out of the car and following it. He ends up following it into a church where 
uh, we see Bennett also follow his buddy into the church. When he walks into the church, he sees his partner kneeling at the altar, and instantly Bennett's like, what are you doing, praying? We don't, we don't do that shit. And then the camera pans around slowly, showing that the thug is not praying. He actually has the barrel of a gun underneath his chin in the suicide <laughs> position, basically. Um, once Bennett comes around and notices what his friend is doing, obviously he tries to you know, talk him out of it. But the thug basically tells him, I saw my mom and she showed me where she is and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place and my mother wants me to be with her. She wants us to be together again, blah, blah, blah. Bennett then tries to go into, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Basically just trying to talk him out of it. But then in the mid literally in the middle of a sentence where Bennett's talking about there's nothing in this neighborhood for us. Um, the thug pulls the trigger and, you know, blows the top of his head off. Did you guys notice the ghost in the muzzle yep. flash? Yeah, mm -hmm. I like, see, little touches like that I like. It is literally, like, a couple of frames long. It's not even a full second. I had to rewind and use my frame skip to actually see it. But, yeah, there, basically, it's mom, and she's standing in front of him with her arms wide open like she wants to give him a hug, but you only see her during the flash of the gun, which I thought was actually a nice little touch. Unfortunately, this movie doesn't have enough nice little touches to really make it watchable, sadly. So anyway, um, the thug has committed suicide. He's laying on the ground with the top of his head missing. Bennett goes back out to the car and sits on it to try to catch his breath. And suddenly the car starts on its own. Uh, the car starts pulling a Christine where it starts threatening him by, you know, moving forward a few feet and then stopping. Eventually, uh, Bennett realizes that the car is not going to stop. So he turns around and he starts shooting in the general direction of the path of the driver's seat, because obviously at this point he thinks someone's fucking with him. Um, basically, as the car is about to run him down, he dives out of the way and the car drives into a van. When Bennett gets back up, he walks over to the car and realizes there is no driver. There's just a bunch of rats. Like, literally, there's probably, like, maybe a dozen rats in the car. So, unless rats learned how to drive, yeah, something supernatural is going on. So, at this point, Bennett's just walking around the neighborhood, and he finds the house that he was looking for, 47 Tollington Road. Uh, once he walks up to the house, magically, all the house lights turn on. Like, before he even steps onto the front lawn, all the house lights turn on, quite invitingly, if, if I might say so. And Bennett realizes, okay, this is the house I need to go to. Uh, so basically, he walks right in. The doors are open. There's no need for him to break anything down. Uh, he walks in, and, you know, the house looks actually really good. It looks out of place, because considering the neighborhood looks all decrepit and abandoned, this one house... Everything is clean and orderly. It looks like it's lived in. Uh, he ends up walking. Uh, he ends up finding a pile of books in the living room, uh, starts flipping through them, but doesn't see what he's looking for. But we do see uh, the book about Miles that the professor wrote in the earlier segment. So once again, tying these segments together. Um, he ends up he ends up hearing noise upstairs. Bennett is walking around the downstairs of the house 
and he starts to realize that he hears noises. Um, as he's walking up the stairs, he starts looking at pictures that are on the wall, and guess what? The pictures are of the professor. Yes, the female professor from the second segment. So mm -hmm. apparently, Bennett is in the professor's house uh, from segment number two. Uh, she walks up, or he walks up to Miles' room because that's where he thinks he hears the noise. And when he walks in, there's the professor who is looking a little bit older, a little bit more haggard than she did during her segment. I don't know, like I said, I don't know if a lot of time has gone by or what, because obviously segment number two had to have occurred first um, based on the fact that that's when the Book of Blood was created, which I haven't actually gotten to yet. Anyway, let me get to that. Um, Bennett walks into the bedroom, sees the professor, basically points a gun at her and says, where's the book? And, you know, she plays coy and says, well, what book? Uh, what are you talking about? And he says, the book of blood. And she, you know, coyly says, oh, that book. Okay, well, guess what? You're looking right at it, and it's looking at you. And, you know, he has a confused look on his face, and he looks over to the right, to, to the rocking chair, and there's Simon in his post um, Book of Blood um, kind of iteration. You know, he's got all the text carved into him, and it looks like some time has gone by because his eyes have glossed over. You can't see his real eyes. They're just kind of that weird gray color. Um, and then the woman explains again, this is the Book of Blood. It's not a book. It's a place where people leave their stories. And, you know, she's basically explaining how this house is her happy place and that she won't leave despite what the neighborhood looks like. And just as she, just as she says, this house is my happy place, Miles comes out from behind her with a big old smile on his face. So she's holding hands with Miles and with Simon at the same time while she's having this interaction with the thug. Um, you know, basically talking about how your stories come to an end. Um, he obviously denies it and says, my story doesn't end tonight. Uh, she says everyone's story ends at this place. And then she turns Simon's head over to the right, and you see Bennett's name carved into uh, Simon's head. At that moment, when Bennett notices that his name is carved into uh, Simon's head, like dozens of rats just come out of the halls, out of the closets, and they all just start to attack um, Bennett. Uh, Bennett is able to get out of the house, um, you know, pretty much unscathed. But once he gets outside of the house, he uh, it looks like there's a rat inside his shirt. Like we can actually see the bump and we can hear the noise of the rat kind of moving around inside of his uh, the shirt that he's wearing. He then, it, it looks, because he still has a gun in his hand, it looks like he's about to try to shoot the rat, which would obviously be stupid because the bullet's not going to stop at the rat. Mm. But he uh, he decides better of it, and he um, pulls out a knife instead, and he starts to stab the rat through his T-shirt, and he ends up stabbing it multiple times, and suddenly he realizes the bump is gone in his shirt. He lifts up his shirt, and there is no rat. He just stabbed himself multiple <laughs> times. So, yeah, so he's now bleeding out. And we see him uh, walk through. Uh, somehow he got out of the neighborhood, Ravenmore. 
And we basically, in, in what's a mildly comical little scene, actually, he ends up walking to the house of the couple from the first segment, the Asian woman and discount Gunnar Hansen. And when he walks up to the house, uh, discount Gunnar Hansen is actually in the process of burying uh, Nathan, uh, the guy who flaked on Jenna's date in the first segment. And uh, discount Gunnar Hansen just looks at him quite politely, actually, and says, can I help you? <laughs> and then we hear a smash sound effect and we see the Asian woman behind him holding a mallet. So she basically bashes him, uh, you know, in she bashes Bennett in the back of the head, killing him and also confirming for us that it was Bennett's body that we saw mm -hmm. chopped up by the chainsaw in the first segment. So, like I said, little clues, little hints here and there, nods and winks to the viewer, letting them know that this does all take place, you know, in the same town around the same time. Um, after the. Uh, after Bennett is hit on the head, that segment actually ends. That's the end of the Bennett segment. And, but there's still more. Basically, when the camera pans or when it, when it um, fades back in, we're with Jenna. And Jenna is in the hospital post-car accident. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. Jenna somehow survived that ridiculous uh, car accident, you know, getting tossed off a cliff, un not seat belted either. She was not wearing a seat belt. She was in the back seat, unprotected, and somehow she survived. Whatever suspension of disbelief, I'll let it go. Um, we then hear Jenna's parents uh, talking to the doctor just outside of Jenna's room, but the door is open, so Jenna is able to hear everything. And we hear the parents talk about, we hear the doctor ask, you know, does she remember? And the parents say, I don't think she remembers anything of what happened that night, blah, blah, blah. Uh, obviously, we think that they're talking about her adventure at the couple's house, but then we get a flashback scene. And what do we learn in this flashback scene? Jenna is on the phone with uh, Tony, who is her boyfriend. And what it is, is they decided to have a suicide pact. Unfortunately, they don't live in the same town. So they were doing a suicide pact over the phone. Um, so we see Tony on the phone, on his cell phone, and he's actually on the roof of a tall building right at the ledge looking down. Jenna, on the other hand, is not anywhere near where she can commit suicide. She's in her bedroom, literally laying in her bed, telling Tony, much like the court case that we heard about, you know, either last year or the year before, basically telling her boyfriend, you know, you're a fucking coward. We said we were going to do this. Um, Tony is basically saying, why can't we be together? Why can't we do this together? But she explains to him, we can't be together because if we do it together, people are going to think that we were just a couple of dumb idiots who were in love. Yeah. And, it, and it, it, it muddies our message. And then Tony's like, well, wait a minute, what fucking message? And that's when Jenna explains to him that, no, we need to kill ourselves because we both come from privilege and that life is a lie and that no matter you know what advantages you might have, life is a problem in search of a solution, I think was her exact words. Kind of close to Ozzy Osbourne's suicide solution, if you will, but that's a story for another podcast. Basically, she ends up convincing Tony to take the plunge. 
Tony jumps off the building, which unfortunately we don't see. Uh, basically, all we see is Jenna on the phone saying, Tony, Tony, are you still there? Tony. And that's so now we've gotten the confirmation of who Jenna is. She's not the sympathetic character that we thought she was throughout this whole movie. She's just a cunt who got her boyfriend to kill himself over the phone. So, like I said, I don't know if this is specifically <laughs> a nod to that court case from whatever last year or the year before. Because yeah. it was basically the same thing, except in that case, in the real life case, the kid killed himself with uh, exhaust from his truck. Uh, he didn't jump off a building. So they took some liberties with it here, but basically the same gist. A girl convinces her boyfriend to kill himself because she's looking for sympathy, not because she actually wants to die. You can kind of see on her face as she's talking to Tony, she has no fucking intention of killing herself. Like I said, I mean, she's calling him a fucking coward, saying, don't you dare leave that ledge. If you don't do it now, you'll never do it. Blah, 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 blah. So... There it is. We get the reveal that Jenna actually is uh, responsible for Tony's death in the most direct possible way, short of pulling the trigger herself. We then see her at the uh, dinner table and she breaks down crying. Uh, you know, she's crying profusely. I, th I think it finally is starting to hit her the kind of person that she is and what she's responsible for everything, all the lives that she destroyed. Cause not only did Tony die, don't forget Tony's father was the guy who came to the mystery, the mystery house to find Jenna. And he in turn got killed. So Jenna's responsible for multiple people dying in this movie, both directly and indirectly. But overall it just makes Jenna seem like an unsympathetic character. So uh, Jenna, for a minute, st stops crying. Uh, the music uh, gets a little bit more intense. And suddenly we see Jenna at a house that looks very familiar knocking at the front door. Uh, when someone opens the front door, who do we find? We find our, uh, our psycho couple. Yes, the Asian <laughs> woman and discount Gunnar Hansen. She voluntarily went back to that house and voluntarily uh, became a part of the garden, as they called it in the movie, uh, all the bodies in the house. Um, she has her eyes removed. She has her ears removed. Everything is closed up, um, you know, sewn up, I mean. Eye sockets are closed. And what's funny, too, is that when the couple opens the door and sees Jenna at the door, they're almost not surprised. They're almost like, yeah, we, we kind of expected you to come back here. Um, and like I said, they show the, uh, they don't show any of the procedure, but they show the post op, uh, where they're taking the bandages off and we see that her eyes are sewn shut. We see that her ears are ripped off and the holes are sewn shut. And, uh, then we see the couple lovingly place, um, Jenna in the spot that they talked about the very special spot and the very special spot they were talking about is in their bedroom. So Jenna is literally under the floorboards at the foot of their bed pretty much until her body expires. Uh, they show Discount Gunner Hansen, close up the floorboard, and the last thing that we see is Jenna crack a big smile with her mm -hmm. eyes sewn shut, her ears sewn shut. She has just a big smile. And I understand why, because, you know, again, she had the hypersensitive hearing earlier in the movie that they pretty much completely abandoned. 
But I don't understand why she wouldn't just kill herself. Because even though she's mute now, she can't see, she can't hear, she can still think. So she's basically left with her thoughts in the floorboards of that house for as long as she survives. So I don't understand why it was advantageous to go back there. Um, Maybe it's just a roundabout way of saying, like, she's finally escaped the cruelty of the world being... But she hasn't. Like, like I said, if they, if they, like, how can I put it? If they would have, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Lobotomized her. If they would have lobotomized her and cut out her eyes and ears, then that's a little bit more of a life of um, no um, senses so that she could be a little bit happier. But if they don't lobotomize her, like I said, she has to live with the guilt of killing Tony and her, his father forever under those floorboards so it just doesn't make sense to me um but whatever what are you gonna do <laughs> um so that is the end of that um particular segment basically then we get a little epitaph just a little closing segment of the professor and simon back at the professor's house in Ravenmore. And she's just talking about how there's so many stories and how there's so many stories uh, that are yet to come. And, you know, and she she says, who will be next? Sequel you know, baiting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sequel baiting with the last line of the movie. I wonder who will be next. And then we go to our fairly well-made closing credit sequence. And that is Books of Blood 2020. Uh, so disappointed in this one. Um, like I said, I enjoyed the second segment because it's been so long since I read this, the book that I forgot where it was going. But once I saw where it was going, I kind of enjoyed it. But yeah, man, the first and third said, uh, they, the third segment goes by so quick and it's really just a conclusion of the first two segments more than anything. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to even call it a true third segment. It's almost like you can call that the wraparound story, and this was a movie with two stories, and and then the wraparound of the thugs. So I don't know. Um, like I said, disappointing in multiple ways. Not a lot of gore, not a lot of death, um, not a lot of horror set pieces. Like I said, I enjoy the CG-filled set piece in the second segment for whatever it's worth. I know it's a little over the top, but I like the look of those spirits. I like how they all looked um, like pissed off, but without being evil looking. Like none of them had sharp teeth or anything stupid. They were just humans, you know, that were ghosts. But just the way that they were presented, they were all naked. Most of them were hairless, blah, blah, blah. I just, I really liked how that scene played out. And then obviously... The fact that it's Simon, this giant piece of shit, who's having all these terrible things happen to him. There's a little bit of schadenfreude there, you know, a little mm -hmm. shameful joy. But what are you going to do? Um, so, yeah, um, a movie that I feel had a lot of potential with the first two segments, but just or, or with the first and third segment, excuse me, and then just kind of fizzled out. I don't know. It's too bad. Um, I don't know what the mentality was behind the decision to put the Jenna story first. Yeah. I mean, you put the longest, most boring of the three stories first. It's not really conducive to people finishing the movie, you know, maybe they, maybe they felt they had to do that because of the way it comes back around at the end. I don't know, but uh, well, that's what I mean. 
that they could have edited this differently. This could have been edited so great in the sense that they could have flip-flopped back and back and forth between the movies. Like they could have shown Jenna get stood up at the coffee shop. And then as she leaves, the thugs walk in on their way to Ravenmore, just something, you know, and, and then we go into that scene a little bit more. Um, like I said, trick or treat will forever be the gold standard of horror anthologies without a wraparound story. And, and basically the blueprint of how to do it right. And unfortunately books of blood did not. So too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Can't argue with much of that. I mean, even though I probably, well, I know I liked it more than Dawn Venom. I think I'm about where you are. It wasn't it's disappointing because there was potential for it to be a lot more, but I think this is just another classic case of you can't adapt Clive Barker without Clive Barker. And that's just a reoccurring problem with his works and other people you know, having control over it. It's just, it, something's going to feel like it's missing without him really being an active part of it. So yep. that's, that's just all there is to that really. Um, but uh, I don't know. Uh, anything else guys? We're ready to wrap this episode up. Oh yeah, please. Yeah. I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, uh, let's hear what else everyone has, if there is anything. Venom, what do you got to tell people to listen to? Unfortunately, I just got a couple of things. It seems like all my podcasts keep going on hiatuses or just going away altogether. I mean, at my highest, I was on 11 shows, and now I'm down to four, and one of those might be going away soon. So I, it, it's... It, it, it's it's a weird time for podcasting for me because I honestly thought I'd be podcasting more during the pandemic, but it seems like more shows are going away instead of, you know, either doing more episodes or maybe even getting new shows. And I know, you know, we get a steady flow of new shows, but, you know, once you get kind of, once you become a fan of a certain show, if that goes away, anything else is just going to be disappointing, you know, so... Um, so anyway, the, the whole gist of my, uh, of my point is just that, unfortunately, I'm not doing a lot, um, on It's Not Horror Okay, um, uh, on the last episode, we looked at 1983's Joysticks, that is available now on the Dark Discussions Podcast Network, the next episode, which will be recorded later this week and should be available sometime next week, will be for 1981's Nighthawks, starring Sylvester Stallone and Rucker Hauer, one of my favorite early 80s, you know, kind of cop espionage type movies. So I'm looking forward to that. And I haven't watched it in almost 20 years, so that's going to be a treat for me as well. Um, on the next episode of the main show, No More Room in Hell, we're going to be looking at a pair of 2000s um Asian horror films. Uh, well, <laughs> one of them, definitely horror. One of them, you can make an argument that, you know, it's more of a murder mystery. Uh, but basically, we're going to be looking at 2005's Executive Koala. Yes, I said that correctly. Executive Koala. If you want to <laughs> learn more, look it up, because it is an experience, let me tell you. And then we're also going to be looking at 2009's Tokyo Zombie, which I fucking love that movie. Any movie, any movie that combines zombies and jujitsu, I'm fucking in. Anybody who knows me knows my two biggest things are horror and MMA. 
And even though it's not a movie about jujitsu, it's solidly a zombie movie. The way that they handle the two guys who have dreams of becoming jujitsu masters and everything else, I, I just I love that movie so much. It, it, it's it's it, it's a near flawless horror comedy in my opinion. Um, so yeah, yep. we'll be looking at that on um, the next. I'm a huge fan of that one too. Nice. Yeah, I kind of figured these were two movies you'd be familiar with. Um, um, I haven't seen. Koala, so I can't say anything, but I, I know the director. I've seen I've seen enough of Kawasaki's other films to know what I'm getting into. So. Exactly, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's not... You can make an argument that it's not really a horror movie, that it's yeah. more of an action murder mystery, but it still, it still solidly belongs on a show like ours, so I'm looking forward to talking yeah. about it. I have already watched it. Holy shit, it was an experience. I can't wait to hear what Derek and Mike have to say about it. Uh, we'll be recording that this Sunday, and hopefully the episode will be out later in the week on our new network, the aforementioned Dark Discussions Podcast Network. And uh, Yeah, speaking, last, of, speaking of that, oh. uh, starting with the last Fresh Cut episode, for anyone that didn't know, that was on Dark Discussions. So that the official transition for Fresh Cuts was our last episode. So this one will also be there for anyone that may have subscribed to the old feed and is like, hey, where did it go? Um, yeah, we'll probably have to do some kind of Facebook post or something to let people know to research it because it's going to be a whole new feed. So I have yeah. to resubscribe to it, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, we'll put a post on Facebook about that. Uh, and then the last podcast that I have to talk about in the Mic of Madness, still on a hiatus, uh, Rebecca Reinhardt is finally back home after working on multiple projects. Uh, we decided to put the Basket Case retrospective on the side, and because of the release of the new Friday the 13th box set, we are going to do a special episode where we talk about just like special features. We're not going to be reviewing the movies because we already did that. We already did the entire franchise on uh, the show. So we're going to be, you know, we're going to be talking about the gore footage from part two. We'll be talking about the uncut Jason Goes to Hell. And then obviously there's two whole discs of special features in that set. So we'll probably be perusing those and talking about that as well. I'm not sure when that episode will record, but I am, you know, hoping against hope that it's before Halloween. That seems like it'll be a good Halloween episode. And then... Um, I've got a couple of guest spots coming up uh, on 22 Shots of Moods and Horror and the Two Drink Minimum Commentary podcast, so look out for those. I'm not sure when we're actually recording those, but they should be sometime in the next month. And that's about it for me. So if anybody else needs a podcast host, hit me up. I got so much free time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Don, how about you? Anything? Um, just a, uh, special little, uh, thing that I recorded with, uh, Bay of Blood. Um, we've, uh, basically just been doing, um, random shows here and there. Um, I'm, um, the last one that we talked about was last week with, uh, Venom, where we did the, uh, or we did a special on four, um, HP Lovecraft adaptations, but, um, another one that I did with, uh, them a couple days later, was a uh, black and white commentary on Lucio Fulci Zombie, which Ooh. was which was an experience. Um, <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, but yeah, yeah, like again, uh, like I've been saying for that show for numerous uh, times now, uh, we're just 
in a holding pattern, waiting for everything to settle down over there with it, with uh, him. So, um, touch and go. Um, I can't really say when we're when episodes are going to drop. What um, upcoming episodes are actually going to be? Um, I know Venom. We've talked um, loosely, and I mean loosely, about doing a part two to the Lovecraft thing. But um, oh, yeah, that- I mean. Yeah, the only thing we've actually set in, settled on is the uh, list of films. So, yeah, yeah um, like, uh, you know, that's going to... Uh, if we record this before the end of the year, I'm even going to be surprised. That's how, like, loose this format this is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, I, to give you an idea of how we are, you know, if we record the, part two of that before the end of the year, it'll be a miracle. Well, so that still doesn't make it as delayed as the horror trivia <laughs> <In semifinals. laughs> whatever it's on now. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so um like I said, uh we're I think we've we've also made the transition to dark discussions. Um I know um Phil has actually begged uh, has actually been hitting us up about when you know, about new episodes and all the like the inf- like the podcast info, like the description and artwork and stuff, which I didn't even mm-hmm. know about. So um, apparently we've made the transition over to there. So if you know you're looking for our shows, we're on Dark Discussions as well. But uh, like I said, um, when when new episodes come out, I don't know what our new episodes are going to be. I don't know. You're just going to have to find out after the fact. <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, look for the um, the first part of our Lovecraft special to drop soon on dark discussions. Um, you know, I mean, I told Venom on the show when we recorded that one, that there's at least three episodes that I've recorded with them that haven't been released yet mm-hmm. since I became a full-time host. So, I mean, maybe now that we're on dark discussions and on an actual, on, on, on like a committed feed, we'll probably start seeing those drop soon, but if you're looking for anything more concrete than that, I can't say anything. Just keep an eye on the Dark Discussions Network, because I think we've officially joined based on the interaction I've had with Phil and everybody else. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, new episodes, I can't say, but uh, just watch Dark Discussions. <laughs> cool. Uh, as far as me, I've got something coming up, but I'm not supposed to say. So I don't even know why I mentioned it. It just uh, <laughs> just came right out of my mouth. Um, but uh, other than that, just uh, No More Room in Hell Sunday, which was mentioned by Venom. And uh, I think that's it. Uh, our next episode for Fresh Cuts, it's the one on Shudder, I think we're doing, right? The Cleansing the Hour? Club? Cleansing Hour, yeah. Ooh, nice. That movie's a lot of fun. There you go. Because um, there's, there's yeah, that... I think yeah. that's I, I would go for that one because that one's fun, and oh, I think we're, we, need, yeah, we need a good we're, movie. We need a good movie. That one's yeah. a lot of fun. We're definitely doing that, and then you know, coming up, I want to do that. Um, the, were, that the werewolf one. That yeah. werewolf and Slam Mountain or whatever. I want to look at that one too. And I also want to check out uh, the Brandon Cronenberg movie Possessor because that's another one that I've been looking forward to. Is that a CCO? I know it's leaked, but. Is that like officially technically out Friday, isn't it? Isn't it like officially Friday? Yeah, that's what I I'm thought. saying. Is that I, I I know it's leaked early because I've seen a lot of people posting stuff about it, but I don't know if it's like officially released to the masses yet. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll definitely. Would... 
definitely we won't do it on the show until it has an official release. Just yeah. uh, well, that's what I'm saying is that I know that it's leaked and it's out there, but I don't know if it's... It's like number four in the queue anyway. It's going to be a few yeah. weeks. You know, another another one that's kind of fallen off because it kept getting delayed because of theaters, but I think it just got like the UK release uh, is St. Maud. I'm, I'm hoping that it gets a release here like on VOD because that's one that I was really looking forward to. A24 flick. I was looking forward to it and then um, oh, We when, still got Train to Busan coming up, don't we? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, last week, isn't it? I think that's last, the last week of week. October. I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, St. Maud was supposed to open when I first got the notice from Regal that way back in August. Initially, when theaters were like, okay, we're going to try to reopen, St. Maud was going to release that week. And I was like, oh, shit, good. I got something to see, actually, when theaters open. And then <laughs> before they ever opened, they're like, oh, psych, never mind. And they just have held on to it. Um, so that's another one I'm hoping sometime this year, maybe it'll get released on VOD because that's like, that looks like right up my alley, that kind of movie. Will it be good? Who knows? But uh, I think basically what we're saying is we have lots of choices. Like I, I'm actually for the first time, the, the small handful of movies we're all talking about right now. Now this doesn't guarantee that they're all going to be good. But they're all ones I'm actually like excited to watch, as opposed to like a lot of the ones we've been doing lately. Is just like, well, it's 2020 and it's on this platform, so we can all watch it. Well, let's hope for the best. But now we're actually getting into some that like I was looking forward to in the first place. So hopefully, yeah. it turns well, I out can, well. I can say this: I've seen Cleansing Hour already, and it's a lot of fun. Um, I also inter- was able to interview the director. So. Nice. Oh, cool. Yeah, so um, that's out there too. If you wanna, it's on my website. Um, it should be pretty easy to find. Um, yeah, so uh, I would recommend that one because that one's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's definitely gonna be next because I think before because we ain't doing tales from I, I the hood. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> I think the cleansing the cleansing hour had came up shortly after we had decided to. Books of Blood. If we had decided to do Books of Blood already, we probably would have done Cleansing Hour for this, but we had already said Books of Blood. So Cleansing Hour is definitely the next episode. It's just after that, there's some choices. Yeah, because the thing is, is that I actually didn't know that it was getting released. I didn't, I mean, they just basically told me about it when they gave me the screener for it. Oh. Okay. And they said it was being released this Friday, so I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> Yeah, so it looks yeah, like so they, yeah, have, they gave me the, yeah, they gave me the screener for it on Monday, and they said, you know, it's being released on Friday, and it's like, oh, wow. Because usually Shudder is really good about promoting stuff that's coming up. But, yeah, they gave me the screener for it on Monday and said, yeah, it's coming out on Friday. Yeah, looking at the calendar, we have today's the 12th. So we probably have the rest of our – because if we do um, – Plus there's already stuff this month that we've missed. There was – Something that came out on October 2nd that Jason Lloyd really liked. I totally forgot the name of it. Um, I did, too. If he, if, if he talks highly of a film, I already forget about it. Oh, no, I hear you. <laughs> I, you know, I, I definitely aren't as high on a lot of movies as Lloyd is. Uh, we're not necessarily the same kind of horror viewer, but if he praises something, then it usually means it's going to be at least halfway decent. I mean, he's the first one who said uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow was awesome. So. Well, he also said Open 24 Hours was the best slasher of the year. So. Yeah, yeah, I know. 
know what's funny is I saw that post right after we recorded that episode. I'm like, oh, well, he tagged us in, when he tagged the post. He said the best slasher of the decade. Let's see what the boys have to say. Oh, that's right. That's what it was. Yep, ah! As soon as I read that post, I was yeah. like, uh... <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. All right, All right guys. Yeah. Um, so if you're listening still that, you know, we got good stuff coming up, hopefully. So let's get out of here. We will see you in a week's time. Say goodnight to the listeners. Later. Hail Satan. Peace.